Good morning and welcome back to Kings and Queens, the podcast where we read, watch, play, and discuss history's favorite scream queens and literary kings of horror. I am your host, Nat, and this week we are diving into Chapter 3 of Stephen King's Holly. Last week we saw Rodney and Emily Harris take on a second victim using pretty much the same MO as they took Jorge Castro. Uh, So I'm really excited to see where this goes from here and what these two are up to. As a reminder, when you hear this sound, that means I have stopped reading from the text and am giving you thoughts, interpretation, things like that. When the sound replays, that means the mic is back to the author. If you have not already, I highly recommend you go back and start from the beginning with us as we go through Holly. And without further ado, here is Chapter 3. Chapter 4, July 23rd, 2021. Part 1, page 35. Holly arrives at the 4th Street Municipal Parking Lot, half a block from the Frederick Building, and swipes her card. The barrier goes up, and she drives in. It's 8.35 a.m., almost half an hour before the appointed time for her meeting with Penny Dahl, but the doll woman is also early. There's no mistaking her Volvo. It has large photos of her daughter taped to both sides and the back. Printed across the rear window, probably a moving violation, Holly thinks, is Have You Seen My Daughter and Bonnie Ray Doll and call 216-555-0019. Holly parks her Prius next to it, which isn't a problem. There's no shortage of spaces in the lot. It used to be packed by nine with the Sorry Full sign out front but that was before the pandemic. Now, large numbers of people are working from home, assuming they still have jobs to work at, also assuming they are not too sick to work. The hospitals emptied out for a while, but then Delta arrived with its new bag of tricks. They aren't at capacity yet, but they're getting there. By August, patients may be bedding down in the halls and snack stations again. As per usual, we love having relatable and current content and commentary on what we have all been through. Uh, Additionally, the comment about the hospitals could be an impending problem for some of our characters, particularly Pete Huntley, who we know is suffering from COVID currently. Because Mrs. Dahl is nowhere in sight and Holly is early, she lights a cigarette and walks around the Volvo, studying the pictures. Bonnie Dahl is both pretty and older than Holly expected, mid-twenties, give or take. She guesses it was partly the thing about Dahl riding her bike to and from the Reynolds Library that made Holly expect a younger woman. The rest was how much Penny Dahl's voice reminded Holly of her late mother. She supposes she thought Bonnie would look sort of like Holly had at 19 or 20. Pinched Emily Dickinson face, hair pulled back in a bun or ponytail, fake smile, Holly had hated having her picture taken, still does. Clothes designed not just to minimize her figure, but to make it disappear. And here we finally get the age of the missing child who really could not be considered a child at this point. But I think it's safe to say that, again, perspective and assumptions made based on your point of view. Uh, Additionally, similarly, sounds like Bonnie Dahl and Holly are pretty similar in their relationship with their mother and their body image. Now, whether or not that is a subsequent consequence of their relationship with their mother has yet to be decided. This girl's face is open to the world, her smile wide and sunny. Her blonde hair is short, cut off in front of a shaggy, sun-streaked fringe. The pictures on the side of the car are full-face portraits, but the one on the back shows Bonnie astride her bike, wearing white shorts with V-cuts on the sides and a strappy top. No body consciousness there. Holly finishes her cigarette, bends, scrapes it out on the pavement. 
She touches the blackened tip to make sure it's cold, then places it in the litter basket outside the swing gate. She pops a lifesaver into her mouth, puts on her mask, and walks down to the building. Maybe they're not so similar after all. Chapter 4, Part 2, page 36. Penny Doll is waiting in the lobby, and even with the mask, Holly sees the resemblance to her daughter. Holly puts her age at 60 or thereabouts. Her hair might be pretty with a touch-up, but now it's wrapped for gray. Neatly kept, though, Holly adds to this first assessment. She always tries to be kind. And here we see further growth in Holly. She obviously understood the negative connotation to comparing this poor woman's hair with rat fur, so she immediately went back and tried to make it into something positive. Safe to say she learned that with Bill Hodges. Miss Doll's clothes are clean but slapdash. Holly is no fashionista, far from it, but she would never put that blouse with those slacks. Here is a woman for whom personal appearance has taken a back seat. Across the requested N95 in bright red letters is her daughter's first name. Hello, Miss Doll, she says. Holly Gibney. Holly has never liked shaking hands, but she offers an elbow willingly. Penny Doll bumps it with her own. Thank you so much for seeing me. Thank you so very, very much. Let's go upstairs. The lobby is empty and they don't have to wait for the elevator. Holly pushes for the fifth floor. To Penny, she says, we had some trouble with this darn thing last year, but it's fixed now. Chapter 4, Part 3, page 37. Without Pete or Barbara Robinson helping out, or just hanging out, the reception area feels like a held breath. Holly starts the coffee maker. I brought pictures of Bonnie, a dozen, all taken within a year or two of when she disappeared. I've got tons more, but from when she was younger, and that's not the girl you'll be looking for, is it? I can send them to your phone if you give me your email address. Her delivery is staccato, and she keeps touching her mask to be sure it's in place. I can take this off, you know. I'm double-vaxxed and COVID-negative. I took the home test just last night. Why don't we wear them out here? We'll take them off in my office and have some coffee. I have cookies if Barbara, the young lady who sometimes helps out, hasn't eaten them all. No, thank you. Holly doesn't have to look to know they're all gone anyway. Barbara can't keep her hands off the vanilla wafers. I saw the pictures of Bonnie on your car, by the way. She's very attractive. Penny's eyes crinkle as she smiles behind her mask. I think so. Of course I'm her mother, so what else would I say? No Miss America, but she was a prom queen back in high school. And nobody dumped a bucket of blood on her either. She laughs, the sound as sharp as her delivery. I love how many cameos Stephen King is throwing in. The bucket of blood is definitely a nod to one of his very first novels, Carrie, the prom queen who got covered in pig's blood. Holly hopes she isn't going to get all hysterical. After three weeks, the woman should be beyond that, but maybe not. Holly has never lost a daughter, so she doesn't know. But she does know how she felt when she thought she might have lost Jerome and Barbara, like she was going out of her mind. Holly writes her email address on a post-it. Are you married, Miss Doll? Doll pastes the note inside the cover of her phone. If you don't start calling me Penny, I may scream. Penny it is, Holly says, partly because she thinks her new client actually might. Divorced. Herbert and I dissolved our partnership three years ago. Political differences were part of it. He was all in on Trump, but there were plenty of other reasons as well. How did Bonnie feel about that? Handled it in a very adult fashion. And why not? She was an adult. 21. 
Besides, the first time Herbie came down wearing a MAGA hat, she actually laughed at him. He was... Mm, displeased. Here is another relationship chilled by the fast-talking man in the red tie. It's not fate, and it's not coincidence. Now again, keep in mind we have to be discriminant when we are reviewing things like this. Is this the author's voice, or is this the character's voice that has such a strong disdain for Trump's politics? Meanwhile, the coffee is ready. How do you like it, Penny? Or I have tea, and there might be a pull in water unless Pete or Barbara. Coffee's fine. No cream, just a little sugar. I'll let you add that yourself. Holly pours into two of the Finder's Keepers mugs, which Pete insisted on ordering. Without looking up, she says, let's cross one tea right away, Penny. Is there any chance your ex-husband might have something to do with Bonnie's disappearance? The jagged laugh comes again. Nerves rather than amusement. He's in Alaska, left for a white-collar job in a shipping plant about six months after the divorce, and he has COVID. His idol refused to wear a mask, so Herb refused to wear one. You know, Trumper see, Trumper do. If you're asking if he abducted his 24-year-old daughter or tempted her into moving to Juno to live with him, the answer is no. He says he's getting better. This makes Holly think of Pete. But when I FaceTime him, it's all cough, 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 wheeze, wheeze, wheeze. Penny says this with unmistakable satisfaction. And here we have finally some confirmation that Penny Doll is not meaning to be rude or curt or anything like that. She is just desperate to find her daughter and she is scared. That explains the, the staccato, short, fervent little sentences and potentially some of the fireback that she gave back to Izzy James when she was working with the police. Chapter four, part four, page 38. In Holly's office, they take off their masks. The client's chair probably isn't a full six feet away, but it's close. Besides, Holly tells herself, perfect is the enemy of good. She opens her iPad to the note function and types Bonnie Ray Dahl and 24-year-old and disappeared on the night of July 1st. It's a start. Tell me about when she was last seen. Let's start with that. You said it was at a Jetmark convenience store? Yes, on Red Bank Ave. Bonnie has an apartment in one of those new Lakeview condos. You know where the old docks used to be? Holly nods. There are several condominium clusters down there now, and more under construction. Soon you won't be able to see the lake at all unless you own one. The Jet Mart is at the halfway point of her ride home, a mile and a half from the library, a mile and a half from her place. The clerk knows her there. She came in on July 1st at four minutes past eight. Jet Mart regular stop, Holly types. She hits the keys without looking, keeping her eyes on Penny. I have the security camera video. I'll send that to you too, but do you want to see it now? Really? How did you get that? Detective Jane shared it with me. At your lawyer's request? Penny looks perplexed. I don't have a lawyer. I used one when I bought my house in Upriver, but not since. She gave it to me when I asked. Good for Izzy, Holly thinks. Should I have a lawyer? That's up to you, but I don't think you need one right now. Let's look at the video. Penny gets up and starts to come around the desk. No, just hand it to me. Double vaxxed or not, home tested last night or not, Holly doesn't want the woman looking over her shoulder and breathing on the side of her face. It's not just COVID. Even before the virus, she didn't like strangers in her personal space, and that's what this woman still is. Penny opens the video and hands her phone to Holly. Just hit play. 
As much as I love to focus on Holly's growth and development, it's actually very comforting for me as the reader to see that her, her old habits, her personality, they die hard. She is still Holly at the core of it, and I love that. Chapter 4, Part 5, page 39. The security camera looking down from a high angle, and it's far from crystal clear. No one has cleaned the lens in a long time, if ever. It shows the so-called beer cave, the clerk, the front door, the miserly parking area, and a slice of Red Bank Avenue. The timestamp in the lower left-hand corner reads 8.04 p.m. The date stamp in the right-hand corner reads 7.121. It's not dark yet, but as Bob Dylan says, it's getting there. Plenty of light is still left in the sky, enough for Holly to see Bonnie pull up on her bike, take off her helmet, and shake out her hair, which was probably sweaty. The last week of June and the first week of July were very hot. Poopy hot, in fact. I am totally getting Annie Wilkes vibes from Stephen King's Misery, also one of his first novels. Uh, it very much, because her word of choice was cockadoody, and Holly's apparently is poopy. She puts her helmet on the seat of her bike, but enters the store still wearing her backpack. She's in tan slacks and a polo shirt with Bell College above the left breast and the Bell Tower logo above the words. The clip is soundless, of course. Holly looks at the little movie with the fascination she supposes anyone feels when looking at someone who went from a clean, well-lighted place into the unknown. Bonnie Ray goes back to the back cooler and gets a bottle of soda, looks like a Coke or a Pepsi. On her way back to the cash register, she stops to inspect the snack rack. She picks up a package. Might be ho-hos, might be yodels, doesn't matter because she puts it back. And in Holly's mind, she hears Charlotte Gibney say, I must maintain my girlish figure. At this point, I wanna tell Holly to be cautious with how closely she is articulating with this new character, with Bonnie, this missing kid. Um, I feel like she might get too attached if she identifies too much with Bonnie's, you know, mommy issues, family issues, all of that. At the register, she has a brief conversation with the clerk, middle-aged, balding, Hispanic. It must be something funny because they both laugh. Bonnie rests her pack on the counter, unbuckles the flap, and puts her bottle of soda inside. It's big enough for the shoes she wears at work, maybe, plus her phone and a book or two. She slides the straps back over her shoulders and says something else to the clerk. He gives her some change and a thumbs up. She leaves, puts on her helmet, mounts her bike, pedals away to wherever. When Holly looks up and hands back the phone, Penny Doll is crying. Tears are hard for Holly to handle. There's a box of tissues beside her mouse pad. She pushes it towards Penny without making eye contact, nibbling at her lower lip and wishing for a cigarette. I'm sorry. I know how hard this is for you. Penny looks at her over a bouquet of Kleenex. Do you? It's almost a challenge. Holly sighs. No, probably not. There's a moment of silence between them. Holly thinks of telling Penny that she recently lost her mother, but it's not the same. She knows where her mother is, after all. Under dirt and sod at Cedar Rest. Penny Doll only knows there's a hole in her life where her daughter is supposed to be. I'm curious about your daughter's helmet. Was it with her bike when it was found? Penny's mouth falls open. No, just the bike. You know what? Detective Jane's never asked about that, and I never thought of it. Penny gets a pass, but Izzy Jane sinks a little bit in Holly's estimation. What about her pack? Gone, but you'd expect that, wouldn't you? 
You might wear a pack after you got off your bike. She wore it into the store. But you'd hardly keep wearing your helmet, would you? Holly doesn't answer because this isn't a conversation. It's an interrogation. It will be as gentle as she can make it, but an interrogation is what it is. Catch me up, Penny. Tell me everything you know. Start with what Bonnie does at the Reynolds Library and when she left that evening. So this was where it really changed for me in the chapter. I, I initially did not understand the significance of the helmet, but I do now. This makes Bonnie Dahl even less likely to be a runaway at that point. Why would she have her helmet on? And at this point, if we're assuming that she is, you know, an upstanding mid-20s-year-old girl, what if the Harrises tried to pull on her heartstrings and she is part of their scheme, whatever it is they are doing to these people? Chapter 4, Part 6, Page 41. There are four assistant librarians at the Reynolds Library on the Bell College of Arts and Sciences campus. During the summer, the library closes at 7. The head librarian, Matt Conroy, sometimes stays until closing, but that night he didn't. Margaret Brenner, Edith Brookings, Lakeisha Stone, and Bonnie Dahl saw out the last few visitors by five past. Before locking, they split up and took a quick sweep through the stacks for anyone who either didn't hear the closing bell or chose to ignore it while reading one more page or taking one more note. Bonnie had told her mother that sometimes they found people fast asleep in the reading room or the stacks, and on a few occasions they came across couples who had been overcome with passion, in flagrant delicious, she called it. They also checked the restrooms on the main level and on the third floor. That night, all the customers were gone. The four gabbed for a bit in the break room, discussing weekend plans, then turned out the lights. Lakeisha got into her smart car and drove away. Bonnie got on her bike and headed for her efficiency apartment where she never arrived. Penny hadn't been very concerned when she called Bonnie the next morning and got voicemail on the first ring. I wanted to ask if she'd like to come over on Friday or Saturday night and watch something on Netflix or Hulu, Penny says, then adds, I was going to make popcorn. Is that all? Holly's nose for a lie isn't as strong as Bill Hodges's was, but she's good at knowing when someone's shading the truth. Penny colors. Well... We'd had an argument a couple of nights before. It got a little heated. Mothers and daughters, you know. Movies are how we make up. We both love the movies, and now there's so much to watch, isn't there? Yes, Holly says. I assumed she was on the phone with someone else, and she'd call back. But there was no call back. Penny tried again at 10, then at 11, with the same result. One ring and then voicemail. In this day and age, I'm sure all of you know this, but it is safe to assume that somebody either has her phone or her phone is dead at this point or damaged to the point where she cannot receive calls. But if it's ringing once, I think somebody has the phone and is hanging up on all incoming calls. She called Lakeisha Stone, Bonnie's best bud on the library staff, to ask if Bonnie was still mad at her. Lakeisha said she didn't know. Bonnie hadn't come in that morning. That was when Penny began to get worried. She had a key to her daughter's condo apartment and drove there. What time was this? I was worried and not checking the time. I think around noon. I wasn't afraid she'd gotten sick with COVID or something else. She always takes precautions and she's always been healthy. But I kept thinking about an accident, like a slip in the shower or something. Holly nods but is remembering the security video. Bonnie Ray wasn't wearing a mask when she went into the store and neither was the guy at the register. So much for always taking precautions. At this point, I think it's pretty safe to say that Holly is a pretty kick-ass detective. She is smart, she's intuitive, she's perceptive, and I think her character, her 
kind of mousiness and fly on the wallness really helps her perceive rather than interfere. She wasn't at her apartment and everything looked normal, so I drove to the library, really getting worried now, but she still wasn't there and hadn't called in. I called the police and tried to file a missing persons report, but the man I talked to, after being on hold for 20 minutes, told me that it had to be at least 48 hours for a teen minor or 72 hours for a legal adult. I told him how she wasn't answering her phone like it was turned off, but he didn't seem interested. I asked to speak with the detective and he said they were all busy. At six that evening, back home, Penny got a call from Bonnie's friend, Lakeisha. A man had arrived at the Reynolds with a blue and white Beaumont City 10-speed in the back of his pickup. That kind of bike had a package carrier to which Bonnie had pasted a bumper sticker reading, I love Reynolds Library. The man, Marvin Brown, wanted to know if it belonged to someone who worked at the library or maybe someone who used the library a lot. Otherwise, he said, he guessed he should probably take it to the police station because of the note on the seat. The note saying, I've had enough, Holly says. Yes. Penny's eyes have filled with tears again. But you wouldn't call your daughter suicidal. God, no. Penny jerks back as if Holly has slapped her. A tear spills down her cheek. God, no. I told Detective James the same thing. Go on. The staff all recognized the bike. Matt Conroy, the head librarian, called the police. Lakeisha called Penny. I kind of broke down, Penny says. Every Psycho Stalker movie I ever saw flashed in front of my eyes. Where did Mr. Brown find the bike? Less than three blocks down Red Bank from the Jet Mart. There's an auto repair shop for sale across from the park. Mr. Brown has a repair shop on the other side of town and I guess he's interested in expanding. A real estate agent met him there. They examined the bike together. Penny swallows. Neither of them liked that note on the seat. Immediately I was concerned that either the real estate agent or even Mr. Brown, this um, a kind of hero complex thing where they find the victim's bike after they themselves made them the victim, not too uncommon. So until further notice, Mr. Brown is considered a suspect. Did you talk to Mr. Brown? No, Detective Janes did. She called him. No personal interview, Holly types, still keeping her eyes on Penny, who is wiping away more tears. She thinks Marvin Brown may be her first contact. Mr. Brown and the real estate man discussed what to do with the bike, and Mr. Brown said, well, why don't I run it up to the library in my pickup, and after they've looked the place over, the repair shop, I mean, that's what he did. Who was there first, Brown or the real estate agent? I don't know. It didn't seem important. It may not be, but Holly intends to find out. Because sometimes killers find the bodies of their victims, and sometimes arsonists call the fire department. It gives them a thrill. Any further developments since then? Nothing, Penny says. She wipes her eyes. Her voicemail is full, but sometimes I call anyway. To hear her voice, you know? Holly winces. Pete says she'll get used to the client's tales of woe eventually, that her heart will grow calluses, but it hasn't happened yet and Holly hopes it never does. Pete may have those calluses and Izzy James, but Bill never did. He always cared. He said he couldn't help it. What about the hospitals? I assume they were checked? Penny laughs. There's no humor in it. I asked the policeman who answered the phone, the one who told me all the detectives were busy, if he would do that or if I should. He said I should. You know, your runaway daughter, your job. It was pretty clear that's what he thought she was, a runaway. I called Mercy, I called St. Joe's, I called Kiner Memorial. Do you know what they told me? Holly is sure she does, but let's Penny say it. 
They said they didn't know. How's that for incompetency? This woman is distraught, so Holly won't point out what would have been obvious to her if her focus hadn't narrowed to exclude everything but her missing daughter. The hospitals here and all over the Midwest are overwhelmed. The staff has been inundated with COVID patients, not just the doctors and nurses, everyone. On the front page of yesterday's paper, there was a picture of a masked janitor wheeling a patient into the Mercy Hospital ICU. If not for the computerized record keeping systems, the city's hospitals might have no idea of even how many patients they have in their care. As it is, the information must be lagging well behind the flood of sick people. When this is over, Holly thinks, no one will believe it really happened. Or if they do, they won't understand how it happened. And since then, has Detective Jane's been in touch? Twice in three weeks, Penny says. She sounds bitter and Holly thinks she has a right to be. Once she came to my house for 10 minutes, the other time she called. She has Bonnie's picture and said she'd put it on NAMUSE, which is a nationwide missing persons database. Also on NCMEC, that's the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, Holly says, thinking that was a good call on Izzy's part, even though Bonnie Ray Dahl isn't a child. Cops often post there if the missing person is young and female. Young females are by far the most common abductees. Of course, they are also the most common runaways. But, she thinks, if a 24-year-old woman decides to up stakes and start over somewhere else, you can't call her a runaway. Penny pulls in a shuddering breath. No help from the police. Zero. Jane says, sure, she might have been abducted, but the note suggests she just left. Only why would she? Why? She has a good job. She's in line for a promotion. She's good pals with Lakeisha. And she finally dumped that loser of a boyfriend. And here we have another immediate suspect. It sounds like there is, there's discourse with mom because of the boyfriend. There's discourse between boyfriend and mom. There's discourse between Bonnie and boyfriend. Immediate suspect. What's the name of the loser boyfriend? Tom Higgins. She wrinkles her nose. He worked at the shoe store out of the airport mall. Then the mall closed down during the first COVID wave. He tried to move in with Bonnie to save on the rent, but she wouldn't let him. They had a big fight about it. Bon told him they were done. He laughed and said she couldn't fire him. He quit. Like it was original, you know? Probably he thought it was. Do you think he had anything to do with Bonnie's disappearance? No. She folds her arms across her chest as if to say that ends the subject. Holly waits, a technique Bill Hodges taught her, and eventually Penny fills the silence. That man could barely blow his own nose without an instruction video. Also very immature. I never knew what Bonnie saw in him, and she could never explain it. Holly, a fan of the hunks on Bachelor in Paradise, has a good idea what Bonnie might have seen in him. She doesn't want to say it and doesn't have to. Penny says it for her. He must have been terrific in the sack. A real 60-minute man. Do you have his address? Penny consults her phone. 2395 Eastland Ave although I don't know if he's still there. Holly records it. Do you have a picture of the note? Penny does. Says Lakeisha Stone photographed it when Marvin Brown brought the bike. Holly studies it and doesn't like what she sees. Block letters, all caps, carefully made. I've had enough. Is this your daughter's printing? Penny gives a sigh that says she's at her wit's end. It might be, but I can't be sure. My daughter doesn't do handwriting. None of them do these days except for their signatures, which you can barely read. Just scribbles. She doesn't usually print in all big letters, but if she wanted to be, I don't know. Emphatic? Yes, that. 
then she might. She could be right, Holly thinks, but if that were the case, might she not have printed in even bigger caps? Not, I've had enough, but I've had enough. Maybe even with an exclamation point or two? No, Holly doesn't care for this note at all. She's not ready to believe Bonnie didn't write it, but she's far from ready to believe that Bonnie did. Absolutely love how that was written, but I agree. The, the emotion behind it and the way that it's written, they do kind of fit together, but it kind of feels like putting together two similar looking puzzle pieces that look like they should fit, but they just don't. Please forward this along with the photos of your daughter. What about you, Penny? Where do you live? Renner Circle, 883 Renner in Upriver. Holly adds it to her notes where she has also written P and B argued, P says it got heated. And what do you do? I'm the chief loan officer at the Norbank branch on the Turnpike Extension at the airport. At least I was, and I assume I will be again. Norbank has temporarily closed three of their stores, we call them stores, and one of them was mine. Not working from home? No. I'm still getting paid, though. One ray of sunshine in all of this, this mess. Which reminds me, I need to give you a check. She opens her bag and starts rooting through it. You must have more questions, too. I will have, but I've got enough to get started on. When will I hear from you? Penny is writing a check quickly and efficiently, not pausing in any of the fields, and not printing either, but writing in small, rolling, tightly controlled script. Give me 24 hours to get going. If you find out something worth sharing before that, call, anytime, day or night. One more thing. Ordinarily, she shies from anything personal, especially if it might seem confrontational, but this morning she doesn't hesitate. She's got hold of this now, like a snarled knot she wants to unpick. Tell me about the argument, the one that got heated. Penny once more folds her arms over her chest more tightly this time. Holly knows defensive body language from plenty of personal experience. It was nothing, a tempest in a teapot. Holly waits. We argue from time to time, big deal. What mother and daughter don't? Holly waits. Well, Penny says at last, this one was a little more serious, maybe. She slammed the door on the way out. She's a good-natured girl, and that was out of character. We had some, some warm discussions about Tom, but she never slammed out of the house, and I swore at her, called her a stubborn bitch. God, I wish I could take that back. Just say, okay, Bon, let's forget about it. But you never know, do you? What was it about? There was an excellent position at Norbank. Records and inventory, collating, front office, working from home guaranteed. How great does that sound with everything that's going on? I was trying to get her to apply for it. She's excellent with numbers and a real people person, but she wouldn't. I told her about the substantial pay jump she'd get and the benefits and the good hours. Nothing got through to her. She could be stubborn. Look who's talking, Holly thinks, remembering fights she had with her own mother, especially once she started working with Bill Hodges. There had been some doozies after she and Bill had almost gotten killed while chasing a doctor who had been possessed, there was really no other way to put it, by Brady Hartsfield. I find it really ironic that Little Miss won't give information stubborn mom is calling her daughter stubborn. I told her if she worked at the bank, she could buy some decent clothes for a change and stop dressing like a hippie. She laughed at me. That's when I called her a bitch. Any other arguments? Sore spots? No, none. Holly knows she's lying, and not just to the private detective she's just hired. 
Is she lying to herself? Holly types one more note, then gets up and puts on her mask. What will you do first? Call Izzy James. I think she'll talk to me. She and I go back quite a few years. And even before Brown, the pickup truck man, she wants to talk to Lakeisha Stone. Because if Lakeisha and Bonnie were besties, even closies, Lakeisha will have a better fix on how the mother and daughter got along. Door slamming argument or not, Holly doesn't want to start this by equating her own mother and Bonnie's too closely. You are not the case, Bill told her once. Never make the mistake of thinking you are. It never helps and usually makes things worse. End of chapter four, page 48. Now I know this wasn't as exciting of a chapter. There was no overt kidnapping going on here, um, but I do think it's really exciting to dive into the case with Holly and try to figure out what's going on. Now, Stephen King is notorious for linking two seemingly unrelated characters and storylines, so I'm really starting to suspect that Bonnie was kidnapped by Roddy and Emily. I hope you enjoyed this chapter just as much as I did, um, and I really look forward to reading Chapter 5 with you guys next week. Don't forget to like and subscribe, and just remember, it's all a bunch of Hocus Pocus.